Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. This is episode three. Please don't wake me up too late. We're now in the spring of 1969 and John and Paul are newlyweds. In this episode, we'll discuss the ballad of John and Yoko tackling one of the biggest and most underexplored mysteries of Beatledom, what was the purpose of and motivation behind creating this mythology? Also, everybody, please do yourselves a favor and get a flu shot. You know, if you break my heart, I'll go. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles' breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of the breakup. That if I ran away from you, that you would want me to, that I'd got a big surprise. Oh, oh, oh. Here's a quick recap of episode two. We discussed the first few months of 1969, the let it be period through John and Paul's weddings in March. We referred to it as a do or die moment for John and Paul a critical period where they were attempting to repair their partnership and find a way to work together despite the presence of new romantic partners in their lives. While the Let It Be period was ultimately successful and productive, their partnership seems to have reached an impasse. Following the weddings, we see their partnership come under attack by multiple sources. Episode 3 focuses on the birth of the Ballad of John and Yoko. We'll examine its roots, creation, and purpose and vitally, we will reconsider John's emotions during this period. The traditional story purports that the Ballad of John and Yoko destroyed the Beatles. What we are suggesting instead is that it was the collapse of Lennon-McCartney that motivated the creation of the John and Yoko Ballad. She's not a girl who misses much Oh yeah She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a window pane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes Okay, so we have obsessively dug into this topic read a ton of books from the earliest Beatles book to the most recent books. And what we find is the vast 
majority of them all have the same story and the same arc. And the thing is, when we go back to the source material, to the the individual memoirs or articles and interviews from the 60s or 70s, that's when we see a lot of new information and a different story emerge. We are coming at it from a different angle, from a different generation, from a different walk of life. And to us, it's just absolutely blatant how fucked up this story is. Right, right. I can make my own assessments. I can decide who I think is the bad actor in the situation. First of all, there's an there's a ridiculous desire to assign a villain to all of this. You know, historically, it, it was either Yoko or Paul, depending on whose side you were on, I guess. And, like, we've worked really hard to say, Yoko is not the villain here. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there are some things that she did that we're critical of. Um, but she didn't break up the band. I mean, that's just stupid. It's just stupid to say that. And... Paul is not the villain either. But I think, like, now it's becoming popular now to take the heat off of Yoko. Now Yoko is a saint, and now it's back to blaming Paul. Right. Right. Paul had a few good years where he wasn't being blamed, and, like, enough already. (laughs) It's true. Let's repoint the blame at Paul. I'm not saying that there is a conspiracy against Paul McCartney. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a conspiracy. It's just bias. Right. The narrative was created with a, a bias in it, you know, yes. 50 years ago. And the news media just continues to repeat this story. There isn't a conspiracy. It's just hard to break a dominant narrative. But that doesn't mean that this narrative is correct. I think it's the familiar story. There is confirmation bias yeah. that, that That's right. media likes to pick up and run, right? Part of the bias is that people assume that John Lennon is always being truthful and honest and like totally transparent all the time, which again is absurd. There is copious evidence to the contrary. I mean, you would never assume that on Paul's part either. Right. John himself has acknowledged it. Oh yeah. John says that he says one thing means another. We all say a lot of things that we don't know what we're talking about. I'm probably doing it now. I don't know what I said. You know. See, everybody takes you up on the words you said in 1940. I'm just a guy who people ask what about things, and I blab off, and some of it makes sense, some of it's lies, and some of it's God knows what I'm saying, you know? Fundamentally, John is a much better storyteller when it comes to building a narrative than Paul. He's just much, much better at it. He oh, will, my God. Like, I, I think that the best line that... John ever dropped was that Paul was a master PR person because Paul sucks at it. He hates the press in general. He doesn't like giving interviews. He's extremely private. You know, a lot of John's weirdo stuff, it's kind of like, well, tip of the hat, sir. Like you said, he's a great storyteller. He does a lot of it with like panache. Yes. In in an entertaining way. Yes. Exactly. Like he has a lot of charisma. Like he is raw and honest, but he is also totally full of shit and selling you a bag of magical beans. Right. And the thing is, this has really impacted the telling of the Beatles story. What we've sort of determined is that the main reason for this, like, Blind spot. cultural brainwashing yes. yeah, it was conducted via the ballad of John and Yoko. And that's what we're going to look at in this episode. Yeah, I think the fundamental question we're asking 
Is it why did they have to create this? What was the driver of it? And we're specifically diving into it because this is when it really shifts and goes into high gear. I mean, they started from the time they get together, but this is really where they start to build the brand. And our perspective is that this is not just a byproduct of being such an epic couple, but this was a campaign that they created and nurtured and loved. I want you, I want you so bad. We're not making any judgment calls about the art that John and Yoko made together, nor are we questioning the actual love between John and Yoko. Hmm. Like we wouldn't judge their relationship if they didn't choose to put their relationship make their relationship yeah. into a product and a brand and really push this product and brand. And because they've done this, we think it's fair game to look at it and look at the impact of it on both them and the Beatles and the other people that are involved in their story. One of the problems with how this story, the Beatles story is told is that it places John and Yoko at the center of the Lennon-McCartney relationship in the final years. And I think that's absurd. When Yoko appears, you know, everybody is dazzled and they sort of just shift the focus to John and Yoko. Now John and Yoko are at the center and Paul, in his own partnership, Paul McCartney is relegated to just like space dust while John and Yoko are now the center of the universe. John and Paul are at the center of the Lennon McCartney relationship. And they are the center of the Beatles, not Yoko Ono. With all due respect to her, she is not a Beatle. And I'm exhausted reading book after book on the Beatles that gives her more space than Paul McCartney. In 69, Paul is on fire creatively, and that isn't focused on. It's like John and Yoko sitting in a bag somehow seems to be what authors focus on instead of, hey, we happen to have this Mozart among us. Let's see what he was doing. Let's see what he was thinking and what he was developing at this time. Nope. No, let's let's look at the acorns. Yes, it like it stops becoming the Beatles story and it starts to become the John and Yoko yeah, story. Yeah, but I think this just re- reflects how much the Beatles story is equated with John's story. And because we don't think the Beatles story is just John's story, well, we think it's all four of their story, but primarily it's driven by John and Paul. That means we continue to be focused on John and Paul. You need to respect Paul for good or bad. You can be critical of him. I'm just saying you need to show him the respect that he matters. How did this authorship manage to take the world's most successful singer-songwriter and turn him into a sidekick? And here's how unimaginative and unintelligent this authorship is. They often they often are like, well, Paul said he likes to be the second fiddle, so I guess he's just the second fiddle. Okay, <laughs> but you're you're also simultaneously making the case that he's crafty, he's the smartest guy in the room, and that he's always conniving to get his way. Okay, why don't you do a little fucking math there, right. geniuses? <laughs> you know, if he's worth eighty-five gajillion pounds, and he's weathered all measure of 
yeah. setbacks and trials and tribulations. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he's Kaiser Soze. <laughs> <laughs> It's a huge mystery to me why the whole authorship thinks this guy who has managed to stay on top for 50 years in the world's most cutthroat industry and who admits he's the world's most competitive person is okay with being number two. No one accidentally becomes the most successful songwriter of all time. Often, John and Paul are smarter than the actual authorship. Well, because yes. they're they're not critical. They don't think critically about any of this stuff. They just sort of report it and go, "Huh? Well, we've already been supplied all the commentary, <laughs> by, so we're just going to repeat John it here." John said, and stick it, "Yeah, stick a sticker on it, and hopefully somebody will buy it." Uh. <laughs> And they do. They do. And, like the and that's, that's why I find so many new books just absolutely painful. Like, absolutely painful. I will read a little bit of them and, like, <laughs> literally put down my book and, and be like, I can't do it. I can't do it. Because- it's like, it's as painful as listening to, like, a Paul McCartney interview where he's telling you how he wrote yesterday for the 15th time. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, there may not be anything as painful as that. The poor the poor interviewers that have to look surprised. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that, Paul. But he, Paul has also said that he has tried to push against the narrative, and it hasn't worked. And it he has, it, and, and it has only come to reflect badly on him, and he's given up. And well, that's so, it. It's 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 not even that people don't run with it. They put they viciously push back they on do, him. They, they attack do. him. It's like it's like just the suggestion that no, Paul's not a side thing. He's actually at the center. It's a a game changer. It is. And we are just astounded how everybody seems to attribute John's emotions to everything in his life, except for the person that he was partners with since he was 16 and that he created his legacy with. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. For some reason, there's a mental block that... Probably that is the relationship that is driving a lot of his behaviors and that he cares about probably as much as or more than anything. Well, and again, they don't seem to have any resistance to doing this on Paul's side. There is such an imbalance in terms of how they're treated. It's okay to assume that John is at the center of Paul's world, yet there is this unwillingness to allow Paul to be at the center of John's world. There's something going on there where doing this, putting Paul at the center of John's universe, is threatening. Yet John's behavior and comments strongly suggest this is the case. Paul's partner was murdered and he gave a lot of interviews after that. And this is the context for which Paul is talking about John. So don't compare 1970 comments from John Lennon to a 1984 interview from Paul McCartney. Well, that's exactly what they do. Authors who tend to rely on that Lennon Remembers interview and some of the subsequent spin 
over the years that has been provided by John and Yoko. They, they selectively ignore and downplay just how important this relationship was to both John and Paul. Not Paul, both John and Paul. And this quote from George Martin illustrates that. We talked about the row of John and Paul, but they really loved each other very much. And they stood, you know, even up to the very last moment, that there was a great love between those two men. That that uh, that we, it's very difficult to understand. They they respected each other in spite of the words that they said in public. So this trope about Paul loving John and John not giving a shit is created by writers and fans. It's a hundred percent fictional. Everyone close to John and Paul like agrees that they loved each other mutually and deeply. Their wives, mm. siblings, parents, friends. There's not a single person in the Beatles circle who has ever suggested otherwise. Right. And yet Beatles authors push this unsubstantiated crap on us is insulting to us because it is not corroborated by anyone in a position to know what they're talking about. Yeah. Where is this coming from? You know, yeah. that it was one-sided. Where where did it even come from? Well, as we just discussed, it's coming from authors and fans who selectively take John's bitter post-breakup spin, amplify that, and ignore the emotion that resides behind it. And then they compare that to Paul's post-80s comments. So that's where that's coming from. The danger is that as time moves on and all these original people are passing away, this bullshit story that's being pushed by these authors who did not know the Beatles is just being like created, recreated and like repackaged as a, a version that they like better, but it's not based in reality. And it's important to correct the story before the real story gets lost. Mm -hmm. And the real story, according to everyone who actually knew them, was yeah. that there was a mutual and deep love between these two men. Yes. And here is another example from somebody within the um, Beatles circle. This one is from Alistair Taylor, Brian Epstein's assistant in the 1960s. And he said about John and Paul, forget what happened later. At that time in the Beatles, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. John and Paul were like brothers. In fact, they were a lot closer than most brothers. John and Paul, as well as being the driving force of the group in those exciting early days, were the firmest of friends. People who talk about the early conflicts are mainly talking crap. It's Lennon who had become the most misunderstood. He could be so gentle. He was a special guy, and I suppose I always felt the most protective of him. Somehow he was more vulnerable than the others, because he did wear his heart on his sleeve sometimes. Yeah, I mean, just to repeat that, they were closer than any two men I've ever known. That's a pretty incredible statement. You know, and yeah. that so, so gets lost in the, the telling. I mean, you know, I, I read a book recently that really didn't even acknowledge the friendship between them, which is insane. It's, it's bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. I mean, it's a, it's a gaslighting. It is a gaslighting. And 
we're just here to shine a light back on it and say, no, the reality is that the relationship was between these two guys. This is what we need to look at. If we want to understand what happened, we need to accept the fact that statements like this exist because it's true. They were closer than any two men I'd ever known. And interestingly, he says, it's Lenin who has become the most misunderstood. And again, that's what we're attempting to do is to revisit John's emotional landscape based on things that he actually said rather than author spin. Because John has been spun both to be more of a saint than he was and more of an asshole than he was. And in his breakup period, while he comes off as decisive and he also comes off sometimes as a bit of an asshole because he's not allowed to have real feelings. And so it's good to remember the fact that this is just the misunderstood John. Listen to what he said, you know, and how people describe him. He was more vulnerable and he wore his heart on his sleeve sometimes. And so that's that's what we believe that he was like yeah. a lot of the time in 1969. Well, Alistair says he was somehow, he was more vulnerable than the others. This is a guy, by the way, who Paul McCartney sh- showed showed up to his house and cried on this guy's shoulder multiple times in 1968 after Jane left him. So Alistair Taylor is aware of how sensitive Paul is. Yes. Alistair Taylor has seen, yes, has seen Paul like come in and cry to him. And he still thinks that John is more vulnerable. Alistair even makes the point that like, he didn't want the other Beatles to see him like that. Meaning Paul didn't wear his heart on his sleeve. Paul found a safe place where he could unload that and then, and then, you know, pulled it together and walked out and like pretended everything was cool. I get, so I think, you know, again, it's like, I think people get the impression because of the way that the Paul talks about John after his death, people get the impression that Paul's just like writing John love letters and, you know, bringing him flowers and begging him to stay like, in the late sixties. And it's that that's not realistic. And and more critically, it's not the full story. So by ignoring the full evidence, we just end up with this incorrect version that keeps repeating. Now we're making the point that John is at least as invested as Paul Mm -hmm. and that he cares just as much and is equally as emotional about this relationship, if not even more. A lot of the sympathy goes to Paul, you know, as we've just discussed, that he's the one that's positioned as hurt and vulnerable, whereas realistically, people around them continually hit on the same point, that it was John who was the most vulnerable. I mean, Alistair also does say that he was not a saint uh, and that, you know, he could be brutal too. So it's not like that's the only side of John, but he says that there was this side that exists and fundamentally, he still was the most vulnerable. So if you're talking about like why the Beatles broke up, nobody's questioning, you know, the dates and like the events that happened. We know all that shit. We've known it. We've known it for 50 years. None of that is changing. We know the history of what happened. Question is, has to be, why did it happen? So we know that after the weddings, John goes full force into building the John and Yoko brand. And we think that part of the reason that he embraced this so aggressively was because he needed a coping mechanism that this is his way of distracting himself 
from the trauma of the Lennon-McCartney relationship crumbling. And what it does is it ensures that he has a place to land, you know, a future, a new dream, mm-hmm. you know, that he is not going to be abandoned and alone, that he has somewhere to go. You know, people freely discuss and romanticize and exaggerate and even mythologize Paul's loss of John at this time and his depression following the breakup. And they continually perpetuate the story that John was liberated by the breakup, despite the fact that John basically institutionalizes himself within a couple of months after Paul leaves in April. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of how John spins it also, because he's doesn't, I mean, he's terrified of looking dumped. Right. Mm -hmm. The idea that he'd be left is just something that he will not allow to happen. Or that's right. Knowledge. That's right. I legit think that at some point he goes, fuck that. I am not going out like that. Right. You know, and that's I, not going to be my story. My story is that I fell in love with a brilliant artist who was so wonderful that I had to leave the Beatles. That's what's going to happen. And that's what you're going to write. And I'm going to fucking tell you exactly how to write it. And they do. Right. Yeah. It's a story that everybody likes because John gets, you know, he comes out the hero on top of it and he gets to be the one in power and he gets to be the one in charge and the one who's rejecting Paul. No one likes the story of John being rejected. Like nobody can handle that, including John, right? So he's like, that is not going to be the fucking story. No. He had this happen once. He is not going to let it happen again. He is not going to be left by somebody he loves. Yeah. And he's going to get out before the axe falls. And like, if you look at it from his point, it's like his main goal at all times is going to try to be to avoid being hurt. And leaving before he's abandoned. Because I think he can tell himself that I left first. You know, it's kind of like what he needs to, to be able to tell himself. Yeah. Well, if, if the story comes out that he's, you know, if the story is ever that he didn't want out, you know, and that shit didn't work out for him, it's just going to, it's going to compound his shame and embarrassment over the whole situation. So it's going to become intolerable. But I think it's interesting that he, he's, he creates this story for the public. And I think it's partly for himself. I think that that is his coping mechanism to convince himself like it wasn't just him building this story. Right. It was his need yes. to create something that gave him a new purpose. For and sure. I think that that's why he sells this so fucking hard. He know? has to believe it. He's he got to believe it. Right. Like he did it because he's eventually going to drive Paul away. And Paul right. doesn't really want him or love him because right. essentially he's unlovable. Yeah. I mean, we're deeply getting into uh, John's psychology, but that hasn't stopped anyone else before. This level of emotion is the reality. This um, depth of feeling was supported by everyone around them, everyone in their lives. You know, for example, this is Tony Barrow talking about John and Paul. He said, they loved each other more than most couples do. And when they split, it was more wrenching than most divorces. And the the thing is that John's behavior has never been recognized because John hasn't been allowed to have a myriad of emotions in this Uh year. It's always assumed that he's detached, disinterested, Uh or angry. 
That's sort right. of the limit of his emotional range. That's or horny for Yoko. Into. Or horny. <laughs> so, so he's allowed this range of emotions, but nothing else. There's this assumption that John was so checked out that he just wanted the divorce and was done. The more that we saw John's own language, the more we realized there's a different story there. I was listening to a lecture given by a very intelligent Beatles author, and the story was being told of the Eleanor Rigby authorship dispute and John's recollection of the the songwriting session when Paul came to his house, uh, presumably in 1966, um, for a songwriting session and uh, George and Ringo and Pete Shotton, they were also there. And everybody sort of joined in kind of on the songwriting session. So like Paul went over, played the song for John and for the rest of the guys. And everybody was sort of chiming in with their thoughts on the lyrics and like throwing out ideas and, you know, sort of soundboarding. And John got very upset about it and was sort of sulking in the corner, getting getting more and more uh, worked up until he explodes at Pete shot and like Pete makes a suggestion and John's like, shut the fuck up, Pete. What do you know? You don't know shit about songwriting. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Pete's like, what the hell? And, and he leaves and that's the end of the session. But, um, John holds a grudge about it and, you know, is, is nursing at this, you know, this hurt for 15 years. And he tells the story in 1980 in the playboy interview. And, he tells a reporter, I was hurt and insulted that Paul just like threw it out to whoever was in the room. Like I wasn't even important as if he didn't know he was supposed to come to me, which he did, you know, but instead of saying to me, John, I want you to help me with this song. He just acted like I wasn't even important. And then he, he later complains that Paul is insensitive so these are the words that John uses. I was hurt, I was insulted, and Paul is insensitive. And yet, when this author was telling the story, the word used was anger. John was angry over right. this songwriting session. And it just was kind of upsetting to me because even when John literally describes his emotions as hurt, even when he admits that he like he was in a vulnerable spot and it, and he's he still has this hurt 15 years later he's still described as being angry right and i think this is important because in the breakup scenario and post breakup john is always characterized as indifferent or as angry and you know maybe looking down on paul but never actually describe it as hurt. That is mm-hmm. continually how John Lennon describes himself. And that is something that is absolutely missing from the analysis of the breakup is empathizing with John as somebody who's feeling vulnerable, like he's being acted upon. A lot of John's behavior in the latter part of the year comes across as very aggressive you know, and, and is in a lot of ways, like, like a lot of it is aggressive and, you know, manipulative. And if you don't think 
that John loves Paul. If you if you think that Paul is nothing but an adversary to John, yeah, you know, <laughs> like rather than his best friend in the whole world, like yeah, you can read it as well, Lennon was just disgusted by McCartney and just like acting this way because he's an awful person and was just being mean, right? Whereas we know that John continually positions himself as being hurt, and if you look at it through that lens then his actions seem very different. Yes, and that doesn't mean that he didn't act in ways that weren't hurtful or, yeah. or mean even. Yeah. You know, he could be mean, and he could have been being mean on purpose. <laughs> like, we're, we're not saying that that's not the case. Right. We're just trying to understand what his motives might have been. And we actually spent some time looking at John's words. He repeats that he was hurt, that he felt insecure, that he was nervous, that he was scared. Uh, you know, those are all words that John uses. And yet that's not how he's described by authors. So this um, positioning is one that authors ascribe to him. And so if you if you think that John Lennon is always powerful, always in control, and he is always being aggressive just because he's such a powerful macho alpha male that he can't help himself. And he needs to just push McCartney around because McCartney is just, just like a, just like weak and soft. Then you're probably going to assume that John was totally in control, coherent and decisive. And he right. knew what he you, wanted. You read that, was, you read that into his actions too, Right. Right, right, right. Which we definitely don't think is the case. And again, to go back to John's own words, you know, we can hear it with our ears. He yeah. says to Paul, you know, a few months earlier in the Let It Be sessions, he says that, like, for me to come back and work with you, I have to swallow my ego and smother my jealousy for you, which means, you know, being with Paul causes John to have jealousy and threatens his ego. You know, like Paul is right. definitely competing and bringing a lot to the table. It does not mean right. he thinks that Paul sucks and is weak. So the point of all this discussion is that reframing and empathizing with John's position and how he describes himself tells a different story about this whole breakup period. One of the reasons that we want to distinguish the anger from the hurt is we think that hurt is actually a driving factor, a motivating factor in 69 for John. We know that Yoko said that nobody had ever hurt John like Paul did. And so clearly Paul has the ability to be hurting John. Yeah. By describing John as being like angry, you make him powerful. Yeah. I just want to read Philip Norman's postscript, I guess, to shout. He says, yet even John's resentment over Paul announcing the breakup first does not explain his later remark to Yoko that no one had ever hurt him the way Paul hurt him. It almost suggests that deep beneath the schoolboy friendship and the complimentary musical brilliance lay some streak of a homosexual adoration that John himself never realized. He might have longed to get away from Paul, but he could never quite get over him. Hmm. Which, you know, I mean, this is Norman's take. 
and apparently it predates Yoko's uh, revelation from 2008 about the contemplated affair. So I guess this is Norman's initial impression from the 80s. And he says it kind of awkwardly, like with the yeah. sexual adoration is kind of <laughs> yeah, a weird like, way to say. Like, that is, a, yeah. I guess by homosexual adoration, you mean adoration? Yeah, I think he's saying like it was an unrecognized Which uh, is so- a- attraction and, and love for Paul. Right, 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 right. And that he never quite got over him, which is something I definitely do believe, actually. Well, that's what I found interesting about that that paragraph is that we do see that twin desire. There seems to be this like desire for him to flee Paul and like inability to leave him because yes. he doesn't he want to leave him. Because yeah. he loves him. Yeah. And so you see this constant tension. You know, there's something that is unsatisfying about the the situation to John, so he may want to leave it, but yet at the same time he wants to be there. You know, I think you could say he might have longed to get over Paul. I mean, I don't think it's that he – I don't think he he longed to get away from Paul. I think he longed to get over Paul. Right. Well, I take it as he longed to get away from Paul to get over Paul. Right, like he's trying to get away from his need for Paul. Yeah, I mean, that that's basically it, that he has this desire to flee from him, to get over him, but it doesn't matter how much he runs, it always stays there. I don't think it's a matter of John of John not being aware how much he loves Paul. I don't I don't really think that's the issue. I think maybe the battle or the confusion um is that John's belief in that love between them vacillates. Absolutely. So, so, yeah, uh, no, I, I absolutely agree. He seems to be sometimes disillusioned. I think they had some kind of a spiritual, you know, special, whatever you want, special love, connection, yeah. love and connection between them. And I think that this is something that Norman is picking up on is that how deeply John's feelings run. It's not that it was unrecognized. It, it, it was just, I think when, when things fell apart, John was like, that was all a fucking lie. I can't believe I even believed you ever. Yeah. And then, then at some point when things get better, he believes again. Mm-hmm. I think at some point he, he decides, fuck this. I don't, I don't believe in it and I'm not going to believe in it anymore. And I'm going to tell myself it doesn't exist. And I'm going to strip all this away from, you know, I'm, I'm tearing off the beetles and burning them. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to just destroy the golden temple. You know, that's the whole theme of Plastic Ono Band. Yes. He's reborn with a new image, a new dream he can embrace. I think that that speaks to Norman's sentence. He might have longed to get away from Paul, but could never quite get over him. We wanted to raise this particular quote because we see the ballad of John and Yoko as maybe an attempt from John to get over, to get away, to build a different future, a different brand from Paul, like his attempt to separate himself, even even if it's not physically at first, you know, he's still within the Beatles, that that's a bit of a separation of identity to get away from Paul. But fundamentally, that it doesn't totally work. You know, he can try and replace what they had. He can't escape it and he can't get over it. I want to clarify that 
we're talking about this soulmate bond that exists between them, that John right. deeply believed in it. And this refers to everything, the competition, the inspiration, mm-hmm. the love, the fact that they could count on each other and were always there for each other and knew each other and saw each other as the reflection of each other. All of these things, um, I think, are combined in you know what Norman's calling homosexual adoration. It's it's the, the combination that makes the soulmate relationship of Lennon McCartney. Now to address our point about how John was allegedly done when he asked for the divorce, how that doesn't necessarily bear out and leads to an erroneous understanding of John's mindset. The first quote is from Derek Taylor, their press officer, the press agent. And it's like the first big press statement that Derek releases after the Beatles' official breakup. Right. So he made a statement right after Paul's album came out with the whole Paul quits the Beatles. But then this is this is sort of the first one that he does after that. The, the thing we have to remember is that Derek is a special confidant. Of John's. Of John's. Yes. Not only was Derek the one who tripped him out in May of 1968 when John was going through his identity right. crisis. Right. Helped rebuild his ego, as he said. Yeah, yeah that's right. Okay. But Derek was also the recipient of some tapes that John and Yoko made, apparently, in, um, in 1969. John sent Derek some tapes and said, hang on to these in case Yoko and I ever break up. Yeah. Um, the traditional <laughs> romantic newlywed blackmail tapes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Derek had those for safekeeping. He, he is a trusted confidant of, of John's. And he is also, by the way, the recipient of a excited postcard from John Lennon in 1975 saying that he's going to go see Paul in New Orleans. Right. So when Derek says something about yeah. John's state of mind, we take it seriously. Derek knows where the bodies are buried. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, All the bodies. He, he definitely does. All the bodies. Derek also said, after John died, that the thing about the Beatles was that John really loved Paul, and Paul, in his own way, loved John, too. That was the first thing that I ever read that made me go, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Let me read that a couple more times. Yeah, me too. That made me look at that at everything differently and sort of pressure test all the garbage I've been fed over the years. Mm -hmm. All right. So he says in this press release, I guess the way it stacks up now and the way it was around the time when Paul dropped the big one is that he wants right out of it all. And they don't. George was greatly disappointed that Paul should come off like he was injured by Klein, their business manager, whom George believes to have greatly eased the effects of the present and ensured the safety of the future. George's view is, did you have to be so nasty? You can go so far, but you can never get back. And you can say things which get in the way forever. For me, I would be glad to play with all of us again. Okay, John's view is, okay, if this is it, this is it. We've all left the Beatles anyway. If Paul were to approach him and say, let's do it together again, he probably would. With no more words, he probably would do it. I think this is shocking because, well, first of all, we've got George saying that, you know, he'd be glad to play with all of them again. We've got some evidence that George was still in. But the really, really interesting 
point was John's point of view. Like we said, we, we trust that Derek has an excellent read on John. And John says that his point of view is if Paul were to approach him and say, let's do it together again, he probably would. With no more words, he probably would do it. Which is pretty shocking in the whole story of the Beatles breakup. It's always told that John was done in, you know, September when he wanted the divorce. And then, uh, and here's Derek saying in July of 1970 that John would go back in a heartbeat. Yeah. Like all Paul would have to do is ask. The The important part of that, that that sort of jumps out at me is if Paul were to approach him. John may feel like the injured party at this point. You know, the fact that he ex- he needs Paul to approach him suggests that he thinks the onus is on Paul to make the move. Uh, Derek's in some way playing a bit of an intermediary here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by throwing out this information that if Paul just asked John nicely, John would do it again. And yet no moves are made at this point. Paul continues to push for the d- disillusion of the Beatles. I'm not 100% sure that Paul doesn't already know that. To me, it's very plausible that Paul knows because John puts out a lot of signals. Yes, he does. Between yes. September 69 and April 70, John puts out a lot of signals that Paul can come back anytime. Please come back. Yeah, sometimes uh, he's bossy, sometimes he's inviting, sometimes he's seducing. You yeah, know, but in all sometimes these sometimes it's get your ass back here. Sometimes right. it's like please come back. Sometimes it's like maybe if you came back and acted right, <laughs> yeah. I might want to play ball. And sometimes it's, the, I'm going to steal all our tapes, so you have to come back. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the point is, like, if he's not done, then he must be maneuvering for some other purpose. There's there's some sort of underlying tug of war between John and Paul going on in this period. And it's a tug of war where Paul is surprisingly immovable. Derek makes one other point in his press release that Paul was committed until he started working on his own album, at which point he was done. We do believe that, you know, Paul shows a lot of signs of being completely committed and, and loving the Beatles and being committed to John. And then at one point, he seems to make a decision or have a change of mind or heart. And then he commits to this new position. John's playing games. Paul's reacting. I don't know if he's playing the same games. So we have that piece of information. We also have a piece of information from John Green. Who was John and Yoko's personal terror reader in the Dakota. He wrote a a tell-all book, as, as, as many of John and Yoko's staff did. After right. John's death. And basically, you know, his, his book is full of like recounted conversations that he had with John while he was doing his cards or whatever. Right. And I mean, the only the reason that we take him seriously is that he had a lot of access to John and Yoko. Well, the, the thing about this particular quote is that it's it's eerily similar to Derek's quote. Right. That's what, what, one thing that we noticed was a similarity of language which made it seem somewhat credible because we're assuming that, you know, that Green is not aware of a press release from... Yeah, he he's not Derek digging Taylor. up, like, obscure Derek Taylor press releases <laughs> and then cribbing them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so in this passage, um, John is, like, kind of ranting or moaning about Paul, and 
he he tells Green the story that, about how he asked for the divorce in the famous divorce meeting, and then how Paul and Alan Klein talked him into not making an announcement. And then John says, I was touched because I thought it was because he had faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. And then he goes on to say, I was touched all right. I was touched in the head because he turned around and fucked me with that press release. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But um, those are my words, but not his. But but the part that stood out here is this this part that's quoted. I thought he had faith that somehow, somewhere, everything would work out and we'd do it all over again. And so that shows us again that he was willing to be chased, romanced. It certainly doesn't reflect somebody who was done. I was out. I didn't care. And that's the thing is it's it's in neither of these scenarios does it continue on. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying do it again. This actual term is something that we've spent some time thinking about because, you know, John had been, they had both been proposing ways for the Beatles to continue. But what John is saying is that let's start over again and do it again. And, and that is almost like a recommitment. So I think that the green comment is really important because it suggests that John's divorce statement, while, you know, probably coming from something he felt at the moment, you know, like I think Mm -hmm. that he really did feel at that point, maybe like he didn't want to be part of it. But I also think it may have been a stunt or an ultimatum or an act to elicit a reaction. And, and I say this specifically because Green says that John was happy when he got a reaction from Paul, which suggests to me yeah. Yeah. that his end goal was not to separate them and to really get the divorce, but to really get Paul to react and do something. Yeah. Yeah, because when Paul does something, he was happy. So if we know from Green that John wanted a reaction from the divorce statement, mm-hmm. and we know from Derek that John was willing to go back to the beginning in 1970, not, not just continue, was willing to do it all over again. This to me, these two pieces of evidence support the fact that underneath it all, you know, John wasn't really envisioning a, a life without Paul or the Beatles. And that the, the divorce statement was not a decisive move, but rather a stunt or an ultimatum or an emotional reaction or a game that he was playing. We find these two pieces of evidence really useful. But even without them, when we look at the the behaviors and we look at the bigger picture and the actions of all the players, fundamentally, we know that John, George, and Ringo fought really hard not to let Paul out of his contract with them. Right. Which, again, suggests that the end goal was not to separate or destroy the Beatles. So... Having established that, let's go back to our story um, where we left off, which was the the double weddings and Mm -hmm. the bed-in. And then we get back and John has written a song called The Ballad of John and Yoko, or most of the song. And he is, to quote Paul, on heat, 
to record it as quickly as possible. Neither George nor Ringo were available to record it, but there was enough goodwill between Paul and John at this point for him to rush over to Paul's place and for them to finish the song together. You know, we talked about this detente that they come back and they sort of had this time where they got along. They had their mates and John seems to be happy that Paul is willing to support him. I think one of the things that helps is it is just the two of them. Maybe he's just sort of like, okay, Liz, uh, you know, I've turned the corner. This is my life. Paul is still here, but we're friends now and we're just going to be friends and we're going to work on our music and it's going to be fine. At least after the weddings, a direction had been chosen and John seems to have embraced it with almost a manic devotion. I mean, they sound really happy on the record. Well, and the interesting thing is apparently they go and finish the song together. So this is Paul helping John write his tra- ha- his his ro- romantic travelogue oh. song. The beginning yeah. of his uh, the, their mythologizing of, of their oh. their romance, and and Paul's helping him do it. That's kind of sweet and symbolic. Well, Paul really does kind of co-sign it. He does. He does. He you know for the rest of his life, he really supports the John and Yoko story. He really does. I mean, to this day, he does. Yeah, he just says that John fell too in love, and we see him in the Let It Be tapes being the supporter of theirs. So even though, for some odd reason, John and Yoko decided to blame Paul later, the evidence suggests that he was pretty supportive of their relationship from the get-go. Yeah, and when they're on the brink of divorce in 1974, too. Right. We see that Paul co-signed The Two Virgins by going and and advocating for it, for the cover, and putting his own words on the liner notes. And again, he supports John and Yoko and does it. And it sounds, they sound terrific together. You know, it was really smart, actually, to write that. Because you've always got a heading for their romance, The Ballad of John and Yoko. Oh, yeah. And it's a Beatles song. I mean, if Paul hadn't come through and made it a Beatles song, that just would have been John Lennon solo. What what I find interesting about this song is that he's starting to document their life. It's like they're embarking on something interesting that the world wants to know about. He's being a journalist, but putting it to music, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. I think he kind of, he described it that way. And I, I happen to love yeah. this song. It's great. But the one thing that I didn't notice about it is it's not particularly romantic. It's like <laughs> all the things that they have gone through, it's more of a you know, what happened on our adventure versus, versus, you know, he doesn't say anything particular about Yoko or about their love or anything like that. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the trials and tribulations of John and Yoko. Yeah. It's not like a romantic ballad. It's like, you know, a boy named Sue or something. All right. When we look at the, the, the ballad of John and Yoko, what are the tenets? Like, what is the Ballad of John and Yoko? Fundamentally, I think the underpinnings of it are the fact that it's a creative, like this magical creative collaboration. Mm-hmm. That what they do is more meaningful than anyone else. <laughs> yeah. You know, or certainly the, the Beatles. Yeah. And that it's based in this epic love story. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the ballad is that, you know, it's, it's like this magical collision of great artistic minds and collaboration and love and meaningful purpose. I mean, it's basically the story of the Beatles. It's basically the story of John and Paul, but with a sort of a romantic, you know, man and wife twist. Right. Which in some ways 
this is what John is doing is that he is recreating a, his creative partnership. Like, I'm going to do it again, but I'm going to do it in a better way. You know, I'm going to marry the person and, you know, we're, we're going to be one identity. And, you know, so there's not going to be this competition between us and that we're going to package it like this. But you're right. I mean, all of those tenets stand for the Beatles, meaningful messages in the world, mm-hmm. some of the magical collaboration and an epic love story. I mean, that's uh, them. yeah, that's them. I mean, I mean, the John and Paul version is that it's like it's an epic love that um, because it's not sexual, it's it's like transcendent. It's it's like it's platonic in the classic sense of the word, like where it's um, it's of the spirit more than yes. the body. Right. Yes. So it's like this epic platonic love that they have. And then John and Yoko is like, well, fine. We have the epic platonic love, too. But we're also super hot for each other. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody can even understand our level (laughs) of hotness. That's right. That's right. But we also are epic and platonic. So take that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're also innocent virgins. And, and we're super children. horny for each other. Yeah, yes. <laughs> exactly. We're yes. pure and very, very dirty. <laughs> <laughs> you think you can beat us? You cannot. <laughs> yes. I think that one thing they do is position their work as being of a higher purpose. Like, you know, this is something that I think flows from Yoko to John is that, you know, this is real art that what we're doing is, is more meaningful. Yeah. That part, I mean, that's the part where I get a bit eye rolly because I definitely don't think the Beatles are any less important or any less sophisticated. (laughs) They're, you know, they're, they're no lesser than any of John Yoko stuff. You know, they, they like their causes. Yeah. There's, there's were more, um, there's were less subtle. And less, to to my mind, sort of less artsy, really. Because to me, when you when art is literal, I just it's not as good. To, I mean, that's kind of that loses the art of it for me personally. I agree. I think that that was trendy at the time, like cause art. You know, it's like right. you need to be behind a cause, and that's more important. And and unfortunately, that's an idea that took hold. Yeah. With rock stars for like 40 years. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. which I find torturous because <laughs> right. I'd rather just be told a story and get the message, you know, yeah, or, exactly. or em- empathize exactly. with somebody and get the message. You learn a lot through empathy. Like that's a very nice way of, of delivering a message. But yeah, so I mean, it's just different ways yeah. of communicating. Um, I'll take Blackbird. Yeah over you know woman is the curse word of the world that's, right. that's not my not my style but yeah yeah me too me too or or another day oh yeah this kind of shows the difference between paul and john uh, you know post beatles paul writes i think a feminist song because it brings to life the um experience of a woman yeah and, and her internal Jesus life protagonist yeah. her internal life her experience and yet he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't do 300 interviews saying, I am a feminist writer, you know, whereas John and Yoko will write a song that is also feminist, but then they spend a lot of time talking and packaging. It's called the feminism song. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like... Feminism is about feminism. (laughs) (laughs) In some ways, John and Yoko were the smarter ones. They're the better marketers. 
Yeah, well, they're not afraid to dumb down a message, that's for sure. They, that is right. for sure. <laughs> yeah. The movement from Paul to Yoko has two elements to it. One, that Paul was his best friend, and he transferred that all that to Yoko, and that they were creative collaborators. And I'm looking at this quote from Gould. And by the way, we're talking about Jonathan Gould's book, Can't Buy Me Love. The axis of the group's genius, of course, was the collaboration between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. For more than 10 years, the musical friendship between these two partners had remained the predominant relationship in both of their lives. But that had changed abruptly in the spring of 1968, when Lennon returned to London from the Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh, blew up his marriage and threw himself into a romantic and creative partnership with Yoko Ono, the fame-obsessed Japanese performance artist who had been pursuing him for more than a year. Ono would later be demonized by the press and the public as the cause of the Beatles' downfall. But she was more like the solvent that Lennon used to dissolve the bonds of solidarity in common purpose that had distinguished popular music's most exalted band of brothers. From the moment Lennon and Ono moved in together, in June 1968, Ono displaced McCartney as Lennon's collaborator, muse, and sounding board that she knew virtually nothing about singing, songwriting, or music-making bothered Lennon not at all. If anything, Ono's brand of dilettantism came as a great tonic to a renowned musical artist whose insecurities about the pretensions of art-making had recently led him to insist to the Beatles' authorized biographer Hunter Davies that Beethoven is a con, just like we are now. Like what I do like here is that he calls out that she's a fame obsessed Japanese performance artist who had been pursuing him for more than a year. Right. Good. Check. So that was good. Point for you. But then, yeah. But then he says, but she was more like a solvent that Lennon used to dissolve the bonds of solidarity and a common purpose that it is distinguished popular music's most exalted band of brothers. So why, why would he want to do right. this? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's just like, there's an assumption that, John was just looking for an excuse to blow up the Beatles. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It's like, okay, so he used Yoko as a way to dissolve his relationship with Paul. Abruptly, as you point out, abruptly. So so he's acknowledging, yes, they were the most important people in each other's lives until all of a sudden, for no reason whatsoever in the spring, John suddenly dives headfirst into this relationship with Yoko, who he is using to dissolve his relationship with Paul. So he's basically acknowledging, you know, the correct version of events as we see them, as we laid out in, in our breakup series. He just doesn't ask why. Or, or he certainly doesn't answer the question why. Also, if John is trying to dissolve the Paul creative partnership and is so over Paul, then why hook up with Yoko and immediately move in with Paul? You know, that doesn't really reflect the fact that he's trying to escape Paul or dissolve the bonds, you know? Or why bring her into the studio? Like, why wouldn't they just go and, like, do their art elsewhere? He's, he's willing to. He wants to escape Paul, but only one room at a time. <laughs> he's like, uh, I don't want to sleep in the same room with you anymore, Paul. I'm dissolving our bonds. <laughs> I'm going to sleep in the next room. How about that in your house? <laughs> Seriously, I'm going to show you and move right in with you. It's 
it's ridiculous. All these actions seem to be designed to suggest that she could be a replacement for Paul. As in, John's using her, but not necessarily to dissolve the bonds. Yeah. But as a, you could be replaced if you do not react and do the things I would like you to do. Well, I'm sure there's some justification for why he had to move into Paul's house. Although I absolutely cannot possibly think of one. (laughs) There's zero reasons. There was no other place to live in London except in Paul's house. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about some of these ideas from these authors. It's like, dissolve the bonds. I don't know. You know? Yeah, yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. Upset Maybe the not. bonds, perhaps. Provoke yes. the bonds. Pro- provoke the bonds, yes. <laughs> Test Absolutely. the bonds, sure. Yeah. Yes. But dissolve them? Not so mm, no, I don't think I think you're a little off off track there. Maybe you should maybe you should think about that a little bit harder before you write a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Put a little put just put a little more thinking power on that one. <laughs> <laughs> a little brain power. <laughs> don't let me nor do I agree that he successfully dissolved the bonds because, you know, they collaborated quite heavily, whether or not he wants to admit it. There was lots of interplay and work together on, on the White Album. And then Let It Be, they, they work a ton together. You know, I agree. So, so true. But th- this is my issue, is that he makes, the, he makes the point that Paul is displaced. Ono displaced McCartney as Lennon's collaborator, muse, and sounding board the minute they moved in together in June of 1968. Like, that's what bothers me. It's like, no, she didn't. Well, she definitely didn't uh, displace him as muse because Paul remained a muse to John for the rest of his life. Right, and also key collaborator. I mean, musically, that remains Paul. It's just like they're like, yep, she was his collaborator from then on. It was just the two of them. And it's like... That's so unfair to Lennon McCartney. Like, he gives her a platform for her art and supports it. And right. she she may inspire him with ideas. In John Lennon's entire career, it's one album that they collaborate on, sometime in New York City. Which John yeah. found very difficult, right? He hated it. <laughs> yes, he hated it. <laughs> so right. much that he said he almost pulled the plug in the middle of the album and trashed <laughs> the whole project. Right. So that, I feel like, is when they tried to replicate Lennon-McCartney. So there's a one album, and then there's maybe a couple singles, like the um, the Happy Christmas single, and maybe... Is Give Peace a Chance a John Lennon-Yoko Ono, or is that just a John Lennon? Uh, by the Plastic Ono Band. By the Plastic Ono Band. Okay, yeah. so let's say, let's, let's say Give Peace a Chance is a John and Yoko thing. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay, so that's like two singles... And sometime in New York City. I mean, and then there's the, there's all their side project albums, all their non-musical albums, like yeah. the Wedding Album and Two Virgins and Life with the Lions and, and stuff. So again, you know, not really musical collaborators. You know, I think that this quote by Gould is interesting because it kind of contains a lot of the assumptions that drive me crazy, that John was done, that Ono totally replaced Paul mm-hmm. as collaborator and muse and sounding board the minute she was on the, in the picture. Without a second thought. Without a second thought. Like, just a seamless transfer. Yes. And they were... All emotion, memory, like like a brain transplant. Right, exactly. Like, she fulfilled all of John's creative needs. 
that Paul had done before. And it so undermines how much Paul brought to the relationship and how much John depended on him still up until the point that they broke up. Like Paul was still producing and making all of John's songs good in the White Album. Who works on Don't Let Me Down with John a billion times? Who makes Come Together really interesting? Who threads his yeah. songs into the medley? And who helps with the lyrics, you know? And even George Martin in, what is it, 69? He says basically that they may not seem like partners, but they're still, they're still Lennon and McCartney. Like, don't be fooled. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so that's the first fallacy in that statement, but it's very typical, you know, that they assume that Paul stopped to matter as a creative partner to John and that Yoko took on that role. And that's just bullshit. He was doing side projects. You know, he did two versions yeah. with her. That They did it all in one night. Yeah, it's massively insulting. And it, it makes it sound like, well, Paul was just a placeholder. Like, he was just replaceable. Which is ridiculous. I mean, that's the thing, is that in some ways, we agree with his point that he used Yoko to mm -hmm. for some reason. He doesn't get underneath. He does something that's fairly revolutionary, which is that... He does acknowledge that John used Yoko to move on from Paul. Rather, you know, he doesn't set it up the way that some people do, which is that Yoko just waltzed in, changed John's world, and Paul was an afterthought. But the way I mean, the thing is, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really follow it through, and he doesn't, he doesn't say... That's crazy. Why is he doing that? Like, what, what could possibly be motivating John to destroy the closest relationship in his life all of a sudden with some rando? Like, tries to destroy for, uh, for apparently no reason that we're not going to dig into. We're not going to try to figure out. <laughs> or even mention. We're not even or going even, to even go there for one right, second. Right, exactly. Like, we're going to sort of acknowledge it in passing and go, huh, that's weird. Well, we don't have time to get into that. <laughs> right. I'm only going to write another 500 pages on Yoko now. But no, no, not going to get into the root of this issue. But he does actually set, set the stakes. You know, he says, dissolve the bonds of solidarity and common purpose that had distinguished popular music's most exalted band of brothers. Like, <laughs> you know, he does say that this was a big deal that John was doing that. I mean, unfortunately, he doesn't take it into interesting territory about why John does this. But, and then to my other point, he says that um, from the moment Lennon and Ono moved in together in June 1968, and he does make the point that she was stalking him, you know, the famed obsessed Japanese yeah. performance artist who's, who had been pursuing him for more than a year. So the minute they meet and get together, because they get together at the end of May, and then at mm -hmm. the beginning of June 1968, Ono displaced McCartney as Lennon's collaborator, Muse, and sounding board. So immediately they get together and she replaces him. <laughs> For no known reason, but he does kind of flag that. He says that she knew no virtually nothing about singing, songwriting, or music making bothered Lennon not at all. If anything, Ono's brand of dilettantism came as a great tonic to a renowned musical artist whose insecurities about the pretensions of art making had recently led him to insist to the Beatles' authorized biographer Hunter Davies that Beethoven is a con, just like we are now. That part annoys me because. Was there anybody on the planet who just took John Lennon more seriously than John Lennon? Like, that, that is a joke. Yoko Ono, I guess. Like, I think he probably liked her dilettantism because John didn't like to 
spend too much time on anything. You know, he was impatient. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like it actually, that's a good point. Like it might've been freeing to not have to get things perfect. Right. Because he's got a partner that can play anything and play anything really well. And we know that John is insecure about that. You know, the shame is that, is that we know that Paul loves to fuck around and experiment too. So it, it's, it's not like they couldn't have been doing two versions together. Well, it makes me wonder why they didn't. Yeah. You know, like John was kind of doing it with Pete the night that Yogo came over. Um, and he, and he did some tapes with uh, Ringo too. I mean, we have like the bootlegs and stuff of him just fucking around in the studio and Ringo you know, singing like lounge singer type style stuff. and Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like Yoko was the one that stimulated John to do these kinds of things. He was playing around anyways. And it, he was playing out around with a system that was set up by Paul, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, would Paul like to do it in his home? Well, I didn't realize this, but in this book, Solid State, he talks about how much Paul worked on, like how many tape loops there are in Abbey Road, which I didn't realize. Oh, wow. Nice. Paul did a lot of them. That's really cool. Yeah. So he's still doing stuff. Yeah, I think there's a quote in there that he loves to go home and work on his tape loops and work on stuff like that. And so why aren't they doing this together? Well, and, and you know, we we know what it sounds like when they do it together because we have the Beatles Christmas records. I mean, they're awesome and amazing. Yeah, they're fun. Those They're two, fun. E- even, even uh, for example, like, you know, my name, I got mm-hmm. my number, which they did in May of 69, April, May 69. Um, you know, I mean, it's not avant-garde, but it's playful. It just makes me wonder why, why he couldn't do it with Paul. I wonder if it's because Paul was not around and not coming to his place. Like, so basically John wants to play, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and do this stuff. And Paul just wasn't around or why he wasn't going to Cavendish is another question. Well, I mean, Jane came back. Yeah. Maybe whatever it was, that could be an issue. It's just an interesting question that Paul says he loves going home on the weekends and doing tape loops and doing, you know, musical exercises like this. And Paul is John's, creative partner and yet he's inspired by doing this with yoko we all know now that paul was the one that originally embraced the avant-garde scene and you know was really into it seems to have really gone deeply into it for a couple of years and and was the beetle was the beetle upon which yoko ono first made <laughs> right, her <move>. exactly <laughs> Right. That's why she knew of him is because he was in that scene. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by all accounts, I think he tried to involve John in this scene. But John, you know, has said that for whatever reason, he felt a little uncomfortable. He, w- he wasn't living close. He could have gone in. But anyways, I suspect that he felt a little left out by Paul's new group of friends, by Paul's new artistic involvement. I mean, if that's your creative collaborator and they're very excited by a new scene, I would be a little bit concerned. Um, And so it's interesting to note that John chooses 
as a partner or a romantic partner, somebody who is an avant-gardist. So it's kind of like, it is a bit of a fuck you. Like you thought you were the RD beetle. You thought you were going to go in this scene and, and this was going to be your thing. Well, no fucking way. But I think it was a way for him to sort of outdo Paul. But also I think that the avant-garde scene maybe took on a greater importance that it had an, a halo from the fact that Paul yeah. had been engaged and interested in it. I wonder if Paul had never had anything to do with that scene, how much time and interest John would have ever given that scene. I don't necessarily mean that John wouldn't have been inventive and creative because I actually think John's genius is partly founded in the fact that he's a real original, total original. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not suggesting that he wouldn't have done work that wasn't groundbreaking. I just think that he may not have focused it on the avant-garde and considered the the avant-garde important if Paul hadn't first embraced it and sort of put it on his radar. But one more point about this, this, um, comment is that he says that she knew virtually nothing about singing, songwriting, or music making. So that's something that needs to be flagged. It's always like, um, you know, uh, you know, Yoko and Paul are equivalent because John used them both as his collaborators. But I hate that comparison because let's give Yoko props for being a performance artist. But John and Paul wrote together, you know, eyeball to eyeball, They wrote so many songs together. Paul was John's best producer and translator of what John wanted into musical sound. He was the inspiration competition. Like these guys played such an important role. And so Gould is flagging the fact that Yoko is a dilettante in music. She maybe had, she had a little bit of training, but that was not her profession or art form. And so for him to all of a sudden be like, I'm going to replace you with this is not based on a creative criteria. If John had abandoned Paul for Mick Jagger. Yes, exactly. The, or but, or even Bob Dylan. If, if John broke up with Paul and was like, my, uh, Dylan's my new partner now. Yes. Then it would be like, okay, fair enough. He wants something different, but I get it. I mean, that, but, that's but, fair enough. Yes, but but Bob Dylan would be a lateral move in terms of what they offer. Right. Their skill sets. Yes. In terms of the, they both have similar skill sets. Yes. They both are. Yes. They both are songwriters that, that John would be able to write songs with. That's what bothers me about this false equivalency between Paul and Yoko as John's two partners. She's just a very, very different kind of a a partner to him. Definitely. Okay, here's an excerpt from Ray Connolly, who's written multiple books about John. Um, He says, with the exception of a few terrific songs in their first years together, and a couple of good ones at the end, John was less creative during his marriage to Yoko than he had been at any time in his adult life. In fact, far from encouraging his creativity, their union seems to have stifled it. In truth, Yoko began rewriting John's history almost from the moment they got together. I'm jumping to another part of the paragraph. Almost immediately, as she came between John and the other Beatles, it was as though John's former life and achievements were being forgotten or downplayed. I mean, that's Ray's opinion. Take it or leave it. Uh, This is always my issue 
Let's delve into what they did as creative partners, because it's kind of like the halo that's over their whole marriage. Not to take away from the actual events that they do, it's just that they're very different kinds of partners. And I don't think that they're equivalent or commensurate, you know, and if you're going to suggest that the collaboration from John and Yoko is equivalent to Lennon McCartney, like, I don't, I don't even want to compare them. One was about, you know, performance art and causes. And the other was a a really true musical collaboration. It's, it's comparing apples and oranges. Well, and here's the other thing. If, if John had gotten together with Yoko and then after the Beatles, he never made any more music. You know, he never he never went on and did um, like Plastic on a Band and Imagine, which are his main celebrated works. Um, and he only did like bat like black bags and performance art and rape films and yeah, you know whatever the, the things they did together. Yeah, the things they did together. Like if that was his career from then on. Then you could say, yes, that was his, you know, one was his Paul era and the other was his Yoko era. Yes. And Yoko was then his creative collaborator and that'd be fine. But they don't say that they're like, well, all of John's solo albums after that should also be credited to Yoko. <laughs> like, that's not, um, that doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, you know, now she's, you know, suggesting that she had a lot more to do with, um, imagine the album, then we know, which we well, don't well, know. Well, why not? Why wouldn't she claim that? I mean, if she's gotten people to, people are writing in actual Beatle biographies of how much of an influence and a collaborator she was with John, like, why not push it? Right. Well, why not push it and be like, hey, behind the scenes, I co-wrote that shit. You can't prove that I didn't. <laughs> right, right, right. But I think, like, you know, she will say that, you know, he got his idea from my book and things that I wrote in my book. And again, to me, that's more of an interplay and inspiration between artists versus collaboration. And and maybe these are just semantics, but I just think... Oh, my God. I I just think... That's his wife. Why is she fighting for credit on... on, uh, That's just... That's just strange. Well, because, and I think that the reason why is actually to your point that if she's given credit for his albums, his famous albums, that really elevates the John and Yoko partnership, you know? Well, and it, and she's trying to get credit. I mean, you know, it's creeping into Beatles history. It's creeping into Lennon McCartney. Right. Well, I told you how, you know, in, in some bios, like a, a recent bio I read of the the Beatles uh, it was Gould's that he sort of attributes, and a lot of them do this, p- because to Yoko as a sort of a kiss off to her in-laws, that being the Beatles. But it's like the story that John tells us that she was playing Moonlight Sonata and he asked her to play it backwards. And then he wrote because, and first of all, playing it backwards does not sound like the song, but it's basically like her playing a song inspired John to write another song. And yeah. all of a sudden that becomes yoko song and it's not like yeah unless she co sat there and co-wrote it or co-wrote the lyrics or something she's not his co-writer but i mean maybe she did and we just don't know that but i don't in that's not what he said that's not what he said and that's they never sort of portray their relationship that way either it's it's kind of like they play off each other they don't know 
But but that's how it's taken. I think that your point is amazing that if we were able to say the Beatles music is the the body of work from Lennon McCartney, and we actually were able to look at the body of work of Lennon Ono, like the Bedins, the Baggins, the Rate films, and sometime in New York City. If we were to put that on the one side and just say that's their partnership, it was different. And yeah. we've got Lennon McCartney, and that was different. That's fine. I'm I'm happy to have those two and just say they're I, I'm both, happy to say that too. Yeah. They're both successful partnerships. It's that it becomes very obscured that like all of a sudden Yoko's sort of given credit for all of his songs from '68 onwards. Right. Right. And. My issue with that is that it it undermines Paul's contribution, Paul's huge contributions. I, I agree. I, I object to that too because Lennon McCartney were were still a thing until late nineteen sixty nine, until Abbey Road was finished. Yep. They were still Paul was still helping out with John's come together, making it swampy, making it sound different, still putting together the songs within the long medley, you know, putting the tapestry of their two songs together, making them all link. You know, there's a lot of collaboration. And they wrote those Sun King together. Yes. So like they, they are still songwriting until the end. Yeah. So John and Yoko are, are married now and they're best friends and they're crazy about each other or whatever. But the thing that we wanted to point out is that it's one thing to just be newlyweds and be happy about it. It's another thing to actively be promoting your relationship and talking about your relationship and mythologizing your relationship. What was driving this? Yeah. Because that seemed to be half the fun for them is talking about their love. The thing is that like, if it is just to sell an image so that you have a product to push, then like I, I can kind of understand it from that angle because the thing is that John and Yoko don't like, they don't write songs together. They have performed, I guess a couple times, but literally like the performing is like John doing his Beatle thing and her going, ah, right, like right, right, right. So this not really a duet. The John and Yoko collaboration creative partnership is, you know, an accepted truism that they are this magical, you know, art couple, creative art couple. Yeah. And yeah, they had, they had all of their happenings and events and they were radical together. So there was sort of like, I guess there was some conceptual art events that they did together. There's an assumption that they were musical collaborators and nobody bothers to dig into that and, and say, well, what did they really do together? They didn't. Well, in every single book that I read, they say that John had a high period during the White Album because, of, because he was re-inspired by Yoko. But they never actually clarify that actually they were all written in India pre-Yoko. Well, and how about the fact that he didn't have an artistic slump in 1967? So what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like, right, 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 was right, he right. Not inspired. He was still writing amazing songs, like all of the, like some of the best work that he ever did in his whole career. Stop fucking pretending that that's not true. It's insulting. I know. I, know. Well, I find so much of what is said is insulting. I think 
67 was John's pinnacle year uh, in terms of songwriting, if you include Strawberry Fields Forever in that 67 period. Right. And, you know, because he emotionally doesn't like whatever happened at the end of 67, and he wants to portray that he became better once Yoko came in, he denies all that stuff and, and authors go with him. There's only the one. It was worth it for that. The one? Because you came out before it, that's all right. Uh, I think we listened to it. The main thing is that she was his new girlfriend. Yeah, that she made him feel good. I mean, he says specifically that, you know, that she saw his genius and that he respected her for her own art. And therefore, she was the answer to his issues in life, that he decided that she was the answer she saw me and she said I was a genius. And so you can see the answer is somebody who sees him and admires him. I also really object to the idea that John and Yoko's love was fundamentally better and more powerful and more special than everybody else's. I mean, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, if they thought that, that's one thing. I mean, you can make that argument. You'd be like, these people were just so narcissistic or just so into each other or just so... Yeah, self-centered. Self-centered or whatever, you know, however you want to put it. Like, maybe they think that. That's fine. But, like, to hear authors co-sign that is not appropriate, and I don't like it. Well, no. I mean, that's the thing is that... What is the evidence for that versus, you know, you've got Paul and Linda who stay together for life. Yep. People around them remark on the closeness that they share. And certainly they were together all the time from the time they got married. Um, whether or not you think that's good or not is a different issue. But right. certainly they were very devoted to each other. John and Yoko told us they had an epic love and they kind of, you know, mythologized it. And so people attribute special powers to their love. Whereas I feel like Paul just walks the walk. What, like what, what's the evidence that, that John and Yoko's love was anything more special than, than Paul and Linda's? Right. I mean, you know, here's one of the benefits of the John and Yoko epic love story is it sort of is the defense an explanation for why John had to break up the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like if you don't believe in this sort of fairy tale of this, you know, love that just obliterated everything in his mind and left him apparently just a vacuous shell, (laughs) unable to do anything else. You know, if you, if you believe in that, then it kind of is like, Oh, okay. I understand why you had to destroy all the relationships in your life and blow up your job. Wow, sucks for the rest of us. Clearly, our loves are just not that special. Yeah. Because unless you blow up your life and job and career for the other person. And get really, really mad and vicious and bitter of against and, your partner for no apparent reason. And take a lot of heroin that you really are not <laughs> experiencing true love. <laughs> That's the thing about them that I that I always keep coming back to is that you don't have to explain 
what a couple is to people. <laughs> Why would you have to explain it? Everybody knows what a fucking couple is. <laughs> A man and a woman who fall in love. But that's just a normal fucking heterosexual couple. And it's not so weird that people are like, why is John Lennon with a woman? They're just like, no, why is he with that freak show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She doesn't brush her hair. She's 10 years older than him. She's not nice. Where the fuck did she come from? Why is she blah? why is she bleeding all the time, you know? Like what the fuck? And why did where is you like destroying your band for this woman? Right. What is happening right here? This is well, not that's, that's basically There's more like, going on. There's something else going on. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about when you say why is she bleeding all the time? <laughs> Bleeding, bleat like a like oh. a goat. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one day I was watching video of them, and I was just like, "She's a thirty-eight-year-old woman who's just sitting right in front of John in the middle of his workplace, it, like he's on parole." Exactly, <laughs> and she needs to be sitting looking at him. <laughs> times yoko has something she has like the ability to not be embarrassed by anything which is which is something no it is something um, i think that's a big turn you know, on to john actually right it, it is unlike you know paul who might who wants to turn things into you know something beautiful and palatable that people like yoko just doesn't give a shit as long as she's getting that's, attention that's exactly it i think he i think that really turns him on he harped on it so much after he got together with yoko he's just like paul was safe and i wasn't you know? i know i know like when they went to toronto and he just sings a bunch of 50 songs <laughs> yeah. if you want to give yoko credit you know it's like yoko's the one up there like bleeding like a goat for people who <laughs> do true. not want to hear it so give her that credit for being balls out it's true in doing the one thing that was really truly weird <laughs> And eccentric. Yeah. That again, nobody liked. I mean, they weren't like, they weren't cheering. Not for one Yoko's person bleeding. there bought a ticket to see Yoko. Not one person. <laughs> no, they didn't. She reflected the kind of things that he wanted to be sort of an mm. artsy outsider doing, you know, important art that people, you know, couldn't understand. I don't think he thought I want to be just like her, but I think he definitely thought like I want to steal some of her cred. Do you remember where there, there was one interview actually where John went off and he was like, wait, Paul's the musical genius. George is a fucking deep one. What does that leave me? What am I? I'm the fucking loudmouth of the group. Okay, I found the quote. It's from Ray Connolly. He's recounting uh, an anecdote about John. And he says, John Lennon I recorded was a very funny man who liked to paint himself ironically as the indignant butt of his own stories. Did you see that Time magazine is saying that George is a philosopher, he asked me one day. And there's an article in the Times that I've actually thought about sending anonymously, of course, to Sood's Corner, saying how Paul is this great musician. One a philosopher, another a great musician. Where does that leave me? The nutter, I hear myself suggest. Yes, I'm the nutter. Fuck them all. This is why it was critical to carve out his own niche and his own space 
and his own way to be admired and be a leader, you know? Yes. Yes. So I think if, if Paul is also stealing his thunder on the, I mean, it's not John's, it's not John's thunder. It's Paul's thunder. I mean, he is, you know, he's not stealing shit from John. That's just Paul. That's, you know, that's his deal. But if like, if he's, if he's got the experimental mantle or label, you know, as well, John's like, well, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, I'm the intellectual rebel artsy one. I'm taking that back. Yeah, you're the musical genius. Fine, you can have that one. Right. I went, to art, I went to art school. You're from right. fucking speak. And unfortunately for Paul, because Paul is also an artist. And you know what I mean? Like John just would not uh, let him have yeah. this label. But in terms of carving out a space in, in people's minds, John wanted to take this back and say, I'm the artsy beetle. Yoko may have been a better mirror for John at this time. We know that John went through a period of feeling very insecure and very depressed, and it could have been that he was measuring himself against certain criteria that Paul had. You know, Paul has good relationships with his family. Paul gets along with everyone. Music comes so easily to Paul. He can play everything really well. Women love Paul. You know, yeah. like he's he's if, he's inspired by the, you know, the gods in his sleep. Right. And this is not to say that John doesn't have all of these same talents and the same genius. It's just that this is how John may see it. Totally undervaluing his own value, you know, what he brings to the table. He may think, well, I don't have a great relationship with my family, whereas Yoko has some of the same issues as John. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. she's struggling with some of her family ties. And so they can commiserate on that. And she also gives him a bit of that. Like she satisfies a bit of his martyr complex too. Well, that's another thing. The fact that they are getting a lot of pushback from society would definitely push them closer together. I mean, he had been so lonely if he felt like Paul was not necessarily available to him, and Yoko gave him that comfort again, that he had somebody he was like who would be there for him all the time, it was constantly reflecting back that he's amazing, and who made him feel good, you know? To clarify why we think John would feel that he was being abandoned by Paul, you know, at the time of the marriages, we played a clip in our first episode where John talks about the fact that he used Yoko so that he felt safe no matter what happened with the Beatles, that he had a place to land. And he makes the point that, you know, during the White Album, Paul had started to make music by himself, and he didn't know why Paul didn't leave and didn't know whether or not he was thinking about leaving. And he muses that maybe it was because Paul couldn't for some reason. But this suggests that this may have been going through his mind. He recognized that Paul can do music on his own, and likes to do music on his own. And that may have been concerning to him. Secondarily, there's an interview that John does in 1971, the St. Regis interview, where John talks about it being a long road to get Paul to commit fully to him, choosing him over family. Right. This was a brief period at the beginning of 1961 where Paul had a day job for about six weeks. And apparently it traumatized John because 10 years later, he described how he needed Paul to quit the side job to prove to John that he was committed, specifically more committed to John than 
to his father. So we think that when Paul gets married and commits to Linda and Heather, and they're about to have a child, that this may have been a signal to John that Paul was going to be less committed to him personally, you know, and that he had been or was going to be deprioritized. I mean, you know, for John not to be number one to Paul probably felt like an abandonment of their partnership. Right. And it's significant that John brings up that story in 1971 when he's trying to explain the breakup. Even though it seems like a non sequitur, he tells that story for a reason. And so we do not think it's a coincidence that John has the busiest year of his life, publicity-wise, in the period between Paul's wedding and Paul quitting the Beatles. Well, I'd like some cornflakes. So to put a positive spin on the ballad of John and Yoko, we do think there is a very positive aspect to it. And John is really just trying to carve out his own space where he feels confident. This is his way of dealing with the situation, recreating a new brand, a new idea, a new dream. And they did inspire a bunch of people with the peace movement and with the art they were doing. So there is a lot of good there. She came in with this point of view that what she was doing was much more important and convinced John of that, unfortunately. And some people might see the things that they did mm. as a higher purpose. And and so I don't really want to judge. That's a different conversation. That's a different conversation. But I just think it would be so healing for everybody if we could just put the light on Lennon and McCartney and celebrate them. If Yoko felt totally secure, I think she would let Lennon and McCartney shine as its own amazing right. story. Right. Why would you not? We tried to think it through from Yoko's perspective. In our very first episode, we played a clip of Yoko talking about the fact that she felt very threatened by Paul. You know, she said it herself, that she was glad that Paul wasn't a woman because there was something very strong between John and Paul. So she picked up immediately. There was some deep bond between them and some, some level of attraction that made her nervous. And then we've got other accounts from people around them, such as Connolly, saying that she was always very threatened. He, he talks about the fact that he, he feels like he was allowed to be there because he was not a threat in the way that Paul was, in that John could up and go and write a song with him. So I think that Yoko is threatened by Paul both on an emotional level right, as well as on a creative level. Yeah. I mean, Paul is the Jolene in this scenario. <laughs> you know why she doesn't want him around. And so if we think of Yoko acting from a position of being defensive and threatened and afraid of Paul, then yeah. she must have been very happy when John started promoting the John and Yoko story. You know, that must have reassured her that she had a future with him, that she was important to him. And, and he may have been trying to reassure her. And he might, she, he might have been getting positive feedback from her. Now, I think that John has his own reasons for doing this, but getting into Yoko's point of view, potentially in this situation, you know, mitigating the threat of Paul is something that played into the John and Yoko story for the rest of their lives because Paul remained a threat to her for the rest of her life. Paul remains a threat to her to this day. That's a great point that she continues to be threatened by him and to push the John and Yoko story 
over the Lennon-McCartney story as a greater creative partnership. I mean, let me ask you a question. Considering how many times John had to answer for How Do You Sleep, for the, for the mm-hmm. nine years after he recorded that album, so many times he had to explain himself. Do you really think that he wants that song on his anthology? No, no, no. When I'm dead, please put that on my greatest hits so everybody hears that particular song. Make sure that that one is amongst the fucking like 10 songs that people remember me for. Make sure How Do You Sleep is up there. That's the one that he wants tweeted out when the Imagine reissue comes. Like there aren't other songs on that album. Yeah, that was a song that John tried to walk back from the minute he issued it. You know, if the anthology was a representation of what John wanted his legacy to be, by all evidence, he wanted that song to be buried. That means to me that that placement there is part of the legacy that Yoko wants remembered. That's right. The other thing is that that is the one song that she actually has evidence that she participated in writing. Yes, that other people will testify to. And yet she's not fighting for that to be Lennon Ono. That's right. That's right. It's a Lennon Ono Klein, actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But that one, they're like, no, no, that's okay. That can just be Lennon. Yeah. But but really, it would be so much better if it was actually listed Lennon Ono Klein, because then you would know. Yeah. Where that was coming from. Yeah. And John said it many times. I think that she was happy to promote this idea that they were a more epic creative partnership. And we see all kinds of people jumping onto the bandwagon of this. You know, I heard a podcast where they were talking about how she was the greatest creative inspiration of his life. Never mind the fact that he had already created the majority of his legacy by the time they met. I mean, I understand from Yoko's perspective why she'd be like, cool, yeah, this is great. I mean, you know, she thinks she's a great artist, so she's happy to think that they are going to be an even greater artistic couple. But there's something beyond it simply existing that's driving them. And and in some ways, what it does do, like when you think of, okay, well, what does it do? You know, how is this benefiting them? Is that it, it manages to make his partnership with Paul less significant and it manages to erase Paul's importance in John's life. It's almost as if that's what it's designed to do. Because John said so many times that he was married to Paul and then he was married to Yoko, uh, because he said this so many times, when the comparison is made, I, I think the traditional way is, is to portray it as if John is saying he was in love with Paul and then he was in love with Yoko. He was inspired by Paul and then he got tired of him and then he was inspired by Yoko. Like he just moved naturally through Paul when he was done with him he just dumped him and then he moved on to Yoko whereas I think 
rather than it just being a natural thing that happened, I think it was more that he was sort of deliberately trying to move on from Paul. Like he's trying to transfer all of his emotions and all of his involvement and all of his inspiration and all that sort of stuff from Paul to Yoko. Right, which is a very, very different story. I mean, it wasn't a seamless transition (laughs) from Paul to Yoko based on the fact that throughout the 70s, John continues to obsess about his relationship with Paul. And, you know, traditionally, if you fall in love with somebody else, you kind of get over that first person. And that's not the behavior that we see from John. And this premise is that this was a deliberate attempt on John's part to deal and cope. And it's a reaction. John is recreating a new partnership, you know, He needs a new dream if the old dream of Lennon and McCartney is crumbling. Maybe he needs to embrace a new identity to be able to deal with the situation. In other words, there's a lot of underlying emotion there that is driving the mythologizing of John and Yoko that goes beyond just it existing and being such an amazing thing. Absolutely. The feelings, um, the feelings for Paul, I mean, they're complicated. There's a lot of different things mixed in there. And sometimes they come out negatively and sometimes they come out positively and sometimes they're infuriating and sometimes they make him feel very weak and vulnerable and sometimes they make him feel mean and powerful, you know, whatever the situation is. But um, it's, it's suggesting it's, that there's indifference there at any moment is just false. When we talk about the ballad of John and Yoko, we think that it is in some ways a reaction to what's going on with John. Because it gives it gives John the ability to reinvent, to rebrand, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to compete with Paul in a new way. Yeah, and he was successful on all those fronts. <laughs> yeah. So in some ways, John's a genius for having done this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know... Hats off to John and Yoko for doing this. They created a beautiful story that people loved. Mm -hmm. They created their own brand that people love. Right. Still making them money today. Right. But the thing is, is that we're saying its creation was partly calculated and partly, I personally think, a coping mechanism for John. This was a period of crisis for John. Mm -hmm. We see him taking drugs And, you know, and then he does all of his bed in and becomes this peace guru. And I think that these were very positive things that made John and Yoko feel good. They got a lot of positive attention. It was very meaningful in the world. And it was a great distraction for John. And it is a great distraction for authors and Beatles fans also. I mean, so much so that it it obscures the real problems and pain and 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 crazy behavior that 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 John is doing in this year and in the next year. This was a pretty smart way for him to refocus the attention. It's almost um it's almost aggressive how he changes oh, yeah. his name, mm-hmm. how he redoes photos that were famous, you know, famous right, photos right. that he did with yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah. You know, the many ways that it's he true. says this is the real deal. It's true. I mean, in some ways, that's such a mean thing to do to your 
partner that you're still partners with. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's such a, it's such a way to hurt the other person. And and to me, I I think it definitely speaks to some sort of hurt that, that John is responding to. Oh, absolutely. Because why would, if you are indifferent to the person or feel guilty, why would there be a drive to hurt somebody? It makes no sense. Why, why would you, if, if John and Paul are just best friends, why, why, like you said, why would he be recreating, you know, intimate pictures that he took with Paul and putting Yoko in the same position? Like, <laughs> right. That's right. It's like you're being replaced. That's exactly and what I, it is. And I'm going to erase you and replace you in the mind of the public. Not just, not yes. just in my life. Yes, right. In the mind of the public. Right. And again, he's doing these things while he's still in a partnership with Paul. So, which is a little bit brutal, you know, it's not like this is two years later. And, you know, I think you just see Paul withdrawing and just kind of going, okay. Well, but again, you know, from John's, from John's point of view, it doesn't seem to be hurting Paul. Well, and and that's, I think that that, that's where, where we flip the story a little bit and just say that John is not doing this to be mean, this is John reacting to his own hurt. This kind of reactionary measure is stemming from a, a place of fear and hurt. And I don't think that's that's the only thing. I think that it's coupled with joy and inspiration from being with Yoko. I mm-hmm. think, as we've discussed, that both these things can be going on at the same, same time. time. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a, it's a way for him not to have to deal with Paul and their partnership crumbling and to embrace something that maybe is much better for him to focus on and, you know, and to distract himself. I've never seen anybody ask the question, like, why is John on TV every day in 1969? When when his band is falling apart, why is John away from the office, you know what I mean? Like, on television every day in a black bag, you know, eating acorns, in the Hilton bed, getting room service or why is he doing all of that stuff every single day? Manically. Yes. Manically doing this. And, and, you know, and I think that the authorship response would be, well, he was just so inspired. That's a hundred percent their response. That's what literally every author says. It was because he was just so turned on by Yoko. Paul who? Like he's not even a factor. Exactly. (laughs) Beatles. What? Yeah. Yeah. Why did this become so important so that it overtook, you know, what his, 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 his life's work and craft, which is making music. To me, it reads as he's fleeing something and distracting himself with something. Right. Well, and again, you know, aside from Gis piece of chance, none of it is music related. You know, there seems to be this view that John was, this was an incredible year for John. And John was in the public eye a ton that year. And talking a lot that year, he and Yoko were always being interviewed. Yet they spent less time on actual work. You know, Paul was just in the studios. He was producing Mary Hopkins. He was helping with Jackie Lomax. He was helping with Badfinger. He was laying down tracks with with George and Ringo for Abbey Road. You know, Paul was in there doing a lot of the music. And I mean, I guess you, who is it for me to judge which is more important? But John's fame from that year came much more from his external activities. I think that John 
was motivated in a way that Paul was not. Paul and Linda are a good comparison in this regard because while they have all the same components, you know, they are a married, creative couple, deeply in love. Linda was every bit the artist and independent woman that Yoko was. And they could have been promoting the Paul and Linda show to the same extent when building their brand. But they didn't seem to be motivated to build their brand publicly. You know, their union seemed just a lot more private rather than it being a public thing, you know, for public display and consumption. Not to say that one is better than the other, but they didn't, and they have all the same components, suggest that they just have different motivators at this point, you know, and the fact that John and Yoko wanted their union to be public suggests some driving factors. Like we know that Yoko wanted attention and she wanted to be out front and center and wanted her art to get attention. So that's one of the drivers of the ballad. But again, John is being driven by his own issues, primarily, you know, that this is exciting to him and and inspirational. But we think also, and importantly, he is driven by the desire to replace the old partnership and erase the old partnership, both in his mind and in the mind of the public. And to some extent... Not totally, but in some ways, it was successful. And the thing that's frustrating is that, like, Paul now, like, Paul nowadays, like, old Paul, sort of comes across sometimes as, like, obsessed with, you know, with John because he talked, you know, he talks about John all the time and he's constantly talking about how much they loved each other. And I feel like the authorship just takes that as, like, oh, geez, you know, there's this big one-sided love on Paul's part. And it skews how they're viewing the actual shit that's going down. Because the thing is that, like, you know, Paul has had to endure people telling him, oh, this looks like John didn't really like you that much. And Paul's like, what? No, 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 you don't get it. And they're like, no, no, no. I think you don't get it, Paul. We get it. We we know. John just, just didn't love you. And Paul's like, no, no, he did love me. And they're like, no, 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 he loved Yoko and Stu. You are not part of the story. (laughs) Right. You know, like, why is Paul telling a story about they slept together a million times? We think he's trying to say, we had an intimacy that you don't know about. Right. So, you know, don't try and tell me that John was closer to these other people. Like, I know what our relationship was. You know, I looked him in the eyes for fucking 10 years. While we're writing and we had a connection because we shared our thinking and we created together. And did any of you do that? No. Right. Like you don't even know what the fuck you're even talking about. Right. And that's, that's kind of Paul's anger coming out in early days is you weren't there. I was. And we find this horrible that people don't listen to Paul. Yes. He does have the tendency to make nice. You know, we know that Paul likes the nicer version. But he's not elevating himself. No. And he's not, he's not, I do not believe in any way that he misrepresents the relationship with John in terms of making it bigger than it was. I agree. I think the unfortunate impact and outcome of the ballad of John and Yoko was that it diminished Paul and John and Paul's relationship. And this is why we flag it right now is because it snowballed during the breakup and 
at the end of the day, it has really reduced Paul's position in John's life. And, and it's become a situation where it's, it's one-sided where it seems like only Paul loved John. And we're saying that we can see from really looking at John's music, his comments and his, his obsession with Paul in in the seventies, that John really, really loved Paul and that some of Paul's weirdo comments that even were like, Oh, Paul, (laughs) but we, we can see through it and see that he, He's trying to put himself back on the radar. He's trying to say that our relationship was really important, but he can't speak for John. So all he'll do is continue to reinforce his side of things. That's right. That's right. And just hope against hope that somebody will step up and tell the story right. We have a lot of interesting topics coming up very soon, including... Mm -hmm. But the Demon King, Alan Klein, the Liberty Bell and the, the Shares, and the Songs of Abbey Road. We'll tie it all together and we'll show you how it's impacting our favorite songwriting partnership. John and Paul. And Paul. everyone thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please consider leaving a five-star rating or review so that other people can find us and just as a reminder this series is done with me diane erickson and phoebe lord from the podcast another kind of mind so if you want to find phoebe please check out another kind of mind podcast stay tuned for our next episode on alan klein the Demon King. Thanks. Bye-bye.